we don't want to remove the human from the process. Mm -hmm. We want to help the human know what's going on. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Educator Central, brought to you by the Learning Solutions Center at Mayo Clinic. I'm Stacy Kraft, an assistant professor of medical education and senior instructional designer at Mayo Clinic. This episode is the third installment of our special limited series, Co-Occurrence. This limited series features discussions on and adjacent to AI, in particular interest to this podcast, its intersection with the education, science, and development professions. In this series, we are focusing on conversations exploring AI and related technologies and their possible, probable, and actual impacts on education. From discussions around what we know, what we hope for, and what is happening concretely today, I really do hope this series can give you something to think about as well as some actionable takeaways. You know, technology is not immune to our human shortcomings. For generative AI, large language models like ChatGPT, bias is of particular concern, especially if we don't address it. Ignoring it could lead to reinforcement of these existing societal biases in the output. But how can we work towards creating more fair and unbiased content when we interact with these tools? We do play an important role in shaping a more equitable outcome. To help unpack some of these questions today, I'm excited to have Tacita Morway, Chief Technology Officer at Textio, a company that has spent many years tackling bias in our technology, and specifically AI, to the show. Welcome, Tacita. Hi, so glad to be here talking with you. You know, today we're here to talk a bit about, you know, generative AI. ChatGPT is is the one that everyone is talking about a lot, and particularly bias. Do you want to give us a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. So I'm uh, I'm the CTO for Textio. We are an AI company and our sort of purpose for existence is actually combating bias in language using AI. Uh, That's the world I live in day in, day out, which is super fun and fantastic. My background, very winding path through engineering and the tech world that also took some detours into heavy machinery operating. And I went to art school. And so my background is kind of all over the place, but there's always been this thread of interest and connection to um, software development and product. And the majority of my career has engineering roles or engineering leadership roles. You know, I have a lot of conversation with different folks in education and the community and how they interact with AI. And bias comes up a lot. Large language models seems to be the thing that everyone is talking about right now. And there is that concern about bias. Um, And then also others that have a lack of concern. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience encountering it and how quickly you recognize its presence and how you got interested? Sure. Bias has been in AI as long as AI has been a thing. It's built on data generated by humans, curated by humans, annotated and labeled by humans, and humans, we happen to come with bias and therefore bias in, bias out. So as far as like when, uh, talking about like when I recognize bias was there, it has to be there. It is a part of it and it will never go away from the AI. It doesn't mean we shouldn't use it or that we should block it. It just means we need to be aware of that. We need to be mindful and careful and really intentional on how we develop and maintain our AI, how we use it, uh, how we bring it into products, and then how the end user is actually using it. There's ways we can mitigate the bias and actually leverage AI in very powerful, very um, positive ways. At Texio, we are an AI company. We've been, like, AI has been the core of what we do since our inception. We've had large language models in our products since 2019. So we are very well versed in this space. And the whole thing we do is 
mitigate and combat bias through AI. So it's, um, it's what we do and it's really fun and it's scary and it's hard, but this is it's a really important area of work and exploration that we're doing here. Well, let's take a minute for people who might be listening and are still a little rusty in some of the terms. What is large language model? What does that mean? And then I guess I'll follow that up as what is bias? I mean, these are, <laughs> maybe that's a very large question. Let's start with the the AI large language model. It's AI that is applied to an incredibly large set of data. And it's the, um, what's a good way of describing this? Um, AI is all finding patterns, finding signals and patterns. And there's different algorithms, different ways you can unlock a machine to find those patterns. And when you do that against a massive, massive data set, um, it can produce really powerful results. And then you say there's bias and we hear word the word bias all the time, but how do we venture to define bias, especially as it pertains to generative text models? Bias is a tendency towards one group, one um, something, some entity. It's a tendency or preference towards that or against that. And usually when we're talking about bias, we're talking about the bias that contributes to inequities um, or harm or unfairness. So things like racial bias, gender bias, ageism, ableism, there's anything that can be categorized can be biased for or against. Now, um, it can also show up as a preference towards something. Uh, one startup I was at, it, it was our uh, belief, it was our bias that to be successful, we needed to move really quickly. It was a bias towards action. And that was actually built into our value system but one of the values was fast, not flawless. And that was our bias there. At Textio, we have one of our principles is to learn by making. Our bias is that that is the best way to learn, is to make the thing and learn from what we've made in that process. When it comes to generative AI, the bias shows up when you're getting unbalanced results or skewed results. And you might expect that. You might have actually done that by design in building that AI, or you might not expect it. An example, a lot of people have heard uh, about the discriminatory soap dispensers, where a company, they design soap dispensers to automatically detect when a hand is there. So it would develop a little thing of the soap into your hands. And so they built this thing using near infrared technology to be able to detect when the hand is there. They sold it, they installed it in all these different places. And then when it got out into real world usage, they discovered that it could not, de it could not detect dark skin. It tells you a lot about who was building it and how they built it and how they tested it. That's, a, that's where bias can show up in our products. I was asked one time to build um, a computer vision model that would detect different types of hair from photos of people. And there's 10 different types of hair that the world sort of categorized. And I was given this data set instead of thousands and thousands of pictures to build this AI on top of. So I could equally find all the different types of hair given any Data, any set of pictures, but the data set I was given didn't have equal representation. There was no way I could build AI that wouldn't be biased towards a certain set of hair because all it was learning from, the most of what it was learning from was long, blonde, semi-wavy hair, maybe even up to curly. But after that, I didn't have as, much, as many pictures. And so I had to go and ask, I was like, this is not a data set that's gonna get us there. So AI, the bias that shows up uh, can show up in the data set it can, in like in that example, or in like the soap dispenser example, it shows up in the actual, the, 
the technology and how the product got tested and built and then failed. Yeah. And that kind of leads to kind of something else I was going to talk to you about, you know, expanding on the definition of bias. We often think of bias when we speak about it as this cognitive bias kind of perspective of, like you mentioned, various groups and such, but there are literally hundreds of different kinds of bias just um, outside of AI um, when we're thinking about just the way that we process information as humans. So I can only imagine that how that translates to AI or programming maybe is even bigger, you know, yeah. a larger swath of, of of things to consider that it isn't just about the data says that all people who are like this are then like this. And so that makes us biased. There are other elements in this mix, right? That's totally right. An example, I think of like halo bias. That's where it's sort of like um, an association. Uh, you assume that someone graduated from a particular school and so they must have these characteristics. They must have this level of competency and skills just because they're associated with that school's name, which is not the case. That's not how humans work, mm -hmm. um, but we have this halo bias. Or if you look at some group of people, you're like, okay, like the leaders of this organization, I've read their blog post. They care so much about DEI constantly thinking about equity in the workplace. And then, so you assume that the entire space will have that, but that isn't necessarily the case. And so that's that halo bias. We're looking for patterns or pattern matching. We're making assumptions. AI is looking for patterns too. So uh, we can, there's inherent risk there. So an AI is looking for patterns too. You mentioned that we can probably never remove bias from the AI from the machine, right? Since it's a reflection of, of humanity. In order for us to be aware, because you mentioned we have to be aware of bias, that is a a hefty task in a lot of ways, because mm -hmm. it, how do you always know what your biases are? Um, and I don't know, does that play a little bit into um, how you think people working in education might offset this or... You know, where, where do you come from for how we be aware? How are we aware? Totally. I mean, so you will know your domain space the most to be able to look for where do imbalances show up and where are things not equally considered or represented? Um, where are we not asking enough questions? Thinking about that critical mindset, one of the principles that we have at Textio is to lead with curiosity. Everybody there is expected to lead with curiosity. We're expected to question the things, question the assumptions, and we do. It's built into how we operate. And, and we talk about it all the time. And that helps us question where these places might be, where these um, imbalances and things might be, where there might be unintended impact or results. And so encouraging your learners to have that critical mindset, to have that curiosity, to not just sort of blindly trust what comes in front of you, uh, is the most powerful thing you can do to equip us all to be careful, to protect ourselves from our consumption of AI and how we're using it. So as individuals or as educators, it is being really upfront and directive in um, asking that of people, asking for that curiosity. Check your work, check the work of others and um, look out for everything you're just talking about, different perspectives, that things that anything that can unblock your thinking in new ways. 
You know, what's fascinating about what you just said is I know there's a lot of fear around AI, especially generative AI, uh, reducing the amount of critical thinking that individuals do because they may rely on it to feed them answers. But I wonder if for some people, or if we practice this process of confronting our assumptions with everything, and then we're confronting the assumption of the AI, if we're, we're going to say that the AI is seeking patterns and producing back to us what we already as a species have put yep. out there, right? Then we would need to question its assumptions. So I guess what I'm wondering is, I wonder if this will lead to stronger critical thinking skills because yes. we're forced to practice it. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It really can. It's going to to lead to new ways of thinking and questioning. It has to. Once you get sort of come up against some of like with ChatGPT's some of its sort of failure mode, that'll help learn. You'll learn pretty quickly. Like, oh wow, I took that thing as fact and it completely made that up. Like ChatGPT, it does not know fact, right? It just knows patterns, and mm-hmm. so it it's learned from the internet. And it, it's going, it's really, really good at speaking human. And it's really good. It's like sounding super well-informed and it will happily tell you something is true that is just factually not true. And it's so hard to detect that. And the first time you put that in a research paper and your professor calls you out on it, you'll be like, oh, wow. Okay. I got to check myself. I got to check the work coming out of this thing. Like there's a name for it. It's called hallucinations. Right. So these large language models create these hallucinations that we as consumers can think of as fact. And that's where, again, for educators to help show those pitfalls so that your learners are looking out for it um, and using things sort of responsibly and safely. Yeah. So one thing I wonder, you know, we buy in for people. Why, why should people creating education and working with these tools even care? Um, what kinds of biased output could there be that would harm their learning? Why does it matter? There's so many different ways that could have both negative and positive impact on learning. Again, with it's not always going to be really explicit bias that's going to be showing up. If you look at sort of the internet that ChatGPT has learned from and you think about uh, let's take anesthesiology. My mother's an anesthesiologist. And I believe like a little over a quarter of the anesthesiologists are women in the US. So that leads to something about who's writing about anesthesiology on the internet. Who's determining what are the projects, the experiments, the research to do. Now, I don't know what patterns ChatGPT is going to take away from that, but it's going to learn something from that. And depending on what you ask of it, Whatever it's learned from that could come out. And that's where like, there's potential harm that we can't anticipate. Uh, we cannot describe, we cannot look out for. Um, so teaching that critical mindset is going to be the sort of most helpful way as an educator to combat potential harm in um, the, ed- the learning process. One of the things we've actually built at Textio in response to great demand over the emergence of ChatGPT is a layer on top of generated content where we can detect harm. So we, our specialty is in the uh, recruitment side of the world for your job posts, your, your recruiting emails, your outreach and, and performance feedback and making sure we're mitigating bias performance feedback. Now those two kinds of writing are very different. Mm-hmm. Bias looks very different in job description than does in performance feedback. Um, but with chat GPT coming out, there's this fear factor of like, ah, yikes. I don't want to use this. I don't want people using this. What do I do? Um, and so like our latest product that we're actually uh, working on right now is a Textio Verified where 
we can verify for you that this content is safe. Mm-hmm. And so there's technology, you know, our technology, it's going to be other things. There's systems you can use to help catch and monitor the potential bias that's showing up in uh, the usage for your students, for your learners. I, I had a thought while you were talking. It, it's almost like what we're talking about with your example about the anesthesiologist and that impacting who's writing the literature, who's doing the research, who's being represented. It, I feel like that already exists in our world. It's just, it's culture. Like, so who writes, who, who gets stories written about them, who gets a chance to, you know, stop whose stories get told and that it sort of feeds. So it's just another layer of culture. And I think what you're describing is if I'm, if I'm understanding it right, that some of the work that you're doing is to build an AI assistant or an AI thing that filters culture a bit for to culture it a different way or is that what I'm it, hearing? It looks out for when uh, there's different kinds of things that we can detect using the mm-hmm. AI that we've developed. Um, so it they can detect things that can be harmful. Mm-hmm. We don't want to remove the human from the process, mm-hmm. but we want to help the human know what's going on and know what's there and see it. And so um, we can detect like if it's personality feedback and pers- if someone's getting professional development feedback mm-hmm. and their manager is writing about their personality, that's irrelevant to their performance, right? Like if I'm nice or not nice, that, that that's about my personality. It's a conversation between me and my parents. Like uh, <laughs> right. uh, shouldn't show up my performance feedback. And so we can catch when that's happening. Uh, when that personality is being being referenced there. So there's all these different things that we can catch and uh, highlight for the writer. Mm-hmm. And then the, the writer gets to make the choice. The writer is control of their content, um, but we are there as that safeguard. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is it sounds like this AI tool or there is a, a world of AI tools that might be coming out that can actually help increase equity and mm-hmm. equality by helping us detect biases that we might not even be aware of that we are carrying or imbuing our writing with. Does that sound right? That is on point. Yes. And um, there's different ways of doing that. And some are more effective than others. So one of the strategies that a lot of these tool makers will do is they'll create rules, exception cases, right? Like when ChatGPT first came out and people were like, whoa, there is some harmful stuff coming out of this thing. The quick and easy fix for them was like, we're going to go make like ChatGPT, when you want to say this thing, don't Mm -hmm. do another thing instead. Don't use this word. Don't use this language. You can't keep up with that. That is um, not a way to maintain protecting bias in your AI. Mm -hmm. Uh, versus having something that is constantly learning, like RA is purpose-built to detect bias. Mm -hmm. And so someone else's AI is purpose-built to generate words, to Mm -hmm. write journal entries, to write comedies. And it's purpose-built for other things. You can layer on top of that the bias detection that is purpose-built for that. That's what Textio does. Uh, When you're using these tools, they might do things to mitigate the bias, but there might be more they can do. So you want to look out for that as an educator of, asking questions about your tool and who's built it. What are you doing to mitigate bias in the output of this tool? Right. And then rather than just rely on a tool, shouldn't educators also work to maybe mitigate the bias upfront, uh, whether or not it's them, their writing, or like you mentioned earlier, to question our own assumptions about what we're seeing 
versus relying on a tool because I, I kind of worry if people just like rely on this tool they're never going to integrate that critical thinking into their own yeah, mind. Yeah, I think that comes to how you are um, inspiring and asking for that that critical mindset and what what are you doing to demonstrate the need for that? How are you setting people up for success? Mm -hmm. And how are you setting people up? Like the value of our fear of AI is that it shows us what to look out for. Mm -hmm. But that can be a map for you um, in getting people to be careful and have that critical mindset. The, my concern about the fear of AI is that we won't embrace it fast enough. The regenerative AI, there is so much exciting, amazing things that this can unlock. Like I, I paint on the side, right? I paint, I draw. I was doing a painting, uh, a portrait for someone that had very personal um, and emotional ties to it. And I got stuck partway through this painting. I got nervous, I got scared. I was like, I am I gonna show enough respect in this portrait? Like. And I got, I froze and I yeah. just couldn't move the painting forward. Call that the and gremlin, I, right? That's popping in the head and saying, you're not good enough. You don't know yeah. what you're doing, right? <laughs> yep. Like you're not like, they're like, be scared. You're going to get it wrong. Yeah. And so I got stuck. I didn't know how to push it further, but I needed to. And I, I turned, I used AI to help show me my painting in different ways. Wow. Now, the things it showed me were totally uninteresting to me sure I was not going to try and copy that but it unlocked creativity yeah. I didn't know I had it unblocked you it gave you ideas of what you don't want to do and opened up that sort of yeah yeah and that now like I've taken that to the next painting and the next painting when I get blocked again I use it again and so there is so much that it can support with our thinking and our creativity our own curiosity and innovation and so as educators you have this opportunity to embrace this and to set people up for success and whole new ways of learning, whole new ways of thinking. What can this technology unlock that actually drives us forward? Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, all of the possible, I mean, we're, we are really at a ground floor level with how to use these tools. What can we do with them? What can they do for us? Not just using it like a Google, you know? Right, <laughs> like right. Person, but like, what can we do that's very interesting and, and helpful for the products and projects that we're trying to achieve? I do want to ask you a question about the elimination of bias. Emilio Ferreira, he argued in an article uh, in the conversation that deleting bias can cause what he called a ripple effect of unknown magnitude, I think was, was his words, and that we should aim for fairness and controlling bias instead. Um, what do you think of that idea of fairness? Yeah, I think there's a lot of value to that line of thinking. If we can't predict the failure modes of the AI, we can't protect against it and we can't get to the source and adjust it and fix it from the most important place, right? We're, we're just putting band-aids. So if we start like, like, like deleting the bias as it shows up, mm -hmm. we now have this AI model that we don't know how it's going to behave. We can't monitor, measure, or protect against how it behaves because we've, we've just chiseled away at it in kind of random ways. And so that sets us up for like a really kind of risky position. Instead, if we're looking for the output, the results of the AI to be fair. Like in that, that example I was talking about with the hair um, right. and there's different hair types. If I can't fairly recognize, if I can't see all the different hair types equally, I should not put, bring that product to market. And so mitigating bias 
um, and looking for fairness in the output, mitigating bias in the input and how the product you've built and designed, that's going to set us up in a much safer way. And again, too, like there's a reason that bias is showing up and that can point us to things we need to correct for. And so having a system on top of that, so like let the AI that you've built do what it's supposed to do and then use different AI that's purpose-built to identify bias, like something like Textio Verified. You put that on top of mm-hmm. your other AI. And in conjunction. safe strategy. With your own critical thinking, right? So, yep, you know, absolutely. Thinking, you know, mentioning that since bias is just built into the human condition, unconscious and conscious bias, I can imagine that if you did try to, quote, chisel it out, like you mentioned, from the data that what we would get would be a very fractured and bizarre picture of what human speak is so totally. yeah right it would be very weird so in some ways it is upon incumbent upon us that we have that critical thinking skill to look at what we're getting and uh be cognizant of different biases that might be there and then perhaps use other focus tools like you're mentioning to help us with the areas we can't see because it's so hard to know all of your your bias right it is very difficult to always be aware of every area that you (laughs) may not be 100% in, right? Totally. That's right. Looking for the subtle stuff that's hard to notice, it takes time. And it, and it takes like, we, we have to build up that muscle of the critical mindset so Mm -hmm. that it takes less time. Yeah. Um, So like an example, our CEOs did hundreds and hundreds of experiments with chat GPT writing performance feedback. And in one of these experiments, uh, she asked ChatGPT to write performance feedback for a particular individual. And then she asked ChatGPT to take the bias out. ChatGPT's strategy was to make the writing more formal sounding and more complex. <laughs> so you've, and it didn't remove any of the bias that was right. in the feedback that it generated. Um, it just made it like, I uh, use fancier words now, which means say the person is reading it it's written in English. English is a second language. Like, yeah, you're actually making this less accessible. Right. And so being critical on how we're using it and really looking out for the subtle impact um, that could happen. It's hard. It's not an easy ask. <laughs> that could introduce new bias of, of like exactly. condescending and all, all kinds of, of potential like angles that just make exactly. you more fancy, you know. <laughs> yeah. And in the medical world too, like I imagine like asking chat to like, be more formal or use a scientific tone and that could lead to some the problematic results yeah definitely how can educators who are who are not programmers who do not have engineering backgrounds who don't build ai neural networks um what can we how can we work with these tools in a way that doesn't propagate or promote harmful bias aside from just you know, looking for tools to help us mitigate that. Is there something we can do? Absolutely. The tools are emerging every day. New tools are coming up all the time. It's very easy to build something with ChatGPT. So when you are looking at a particular or any generative AI or any large language model, when you are evaluating a tool for usage in your space, in your work, you can and should ask a lot of questions of the, the, the makers, right? And this is not that this is happening. We get asked all the time, 
uh, set of very important questions. And I get really excited every time someone's asking me because then I, I, I love hearing that awareness. Um, so some of the questions that we recommend people ask, one is what is this designed specifically for? Like mm -hmm. Textio is specifically designed for uh, recruiting emails, job posts, and our performance feedback. Like there's certain writing domains that we're specifically designed for. If you want to go write a poem, probably not the best tool for you. And so if you ask what the tool is you're evaluating, what it's designed for, then you can see like, is this actually going to be a good tool for my use case? And if there's gaps, if there are two steps to the left of what I'm intending to do, what kind of problems might that um, surface? Well, and I think that question applies to all kinds of technology. We see that with all kinds of tools and softwares where, where people really need to talk, stop and ask, what is this tool best at? What is it made for? And and often we see, I've seen folks try to fit, you know, square peg, round hole kind of situation, try to fit yeah. what they want to do into a tool that really doesn't do that. And I think, so I don't think it's a unique problem, but that I also see that many people aren't even asking that question about a tool as simple as like Word, you know, Microsoft Word. So how do we get people to start thinking about like, not only should you be asking this about your simple tools, right? The ones that we just take for granted, but right. as well. That's totally right. That's totally right. And it it's going to be forming new habits, new expectations, new playbooks that we follow. That that one, the purpose-built one is a really important question. Asking where the data comes from. Who, like, how is this data maintained? You know, to my story about the hair types, like that data set, if anybody asked anything about that data set, they're like, oh, no, I, I want no part of this. It's not going to give me the result that I want. So asking about the data set and they might have materials already. Here's the one pager and they might talk about how they're mitigating bias in their, in their data. A lot of um, vendors, a lot of technology is, um, are doing that. If they don't, might be a moment for pause. Like, hey, why, why aren't you talking about this? Why can't you speak to this mm -hmm. for me? Um, asking who's on the team to the story about the soap dispenser. Mm -hmm. You know, if you do not have diversity within your team, you are creating problems in the product you're developing. It's, there's, there's not another way to look at that. Yeah. And so you can ask who, who is on the team, uh, whose perspectives are represented here. And, and what are their skills? What is their background? Like I said, it's, it's pretty easy to create technology and new tools um, with LLMs today. So is this, uh, is it built by people who are really have experience with AI? The last question that's really important to ask is not actually about the tool itself, um, but getting some of the things that you've been talking about is how equipped are you to be able to look out for potential impact of this tool? How equipped are you or your team or your learners going to be um, to use this thing safely and carefully? And if you're not sure that you can, if you're not sure, like if you don't feel confident that you can find the potential pitfalls and the opportunities, um, you know, that, that's also something to think about. Yeah, and I think part of that question could be exploring uh, you know, education around critical thinking. I feel like nobody has reached the apex of critical thinking. Right. But there's always a, a, a frontier beyond that we could go to. And I, I often think when I think about this topic of bias, as someone becomes well-versed in biases, that they get, that there's the potential you could get trapped in 
bias bias where you think that you don't have bias because right. you're biased about your perceptions of bias so to be even aware of that that like you even have biases about your own ability to have or not have biases so you have to be working at them right it's not going to just come to you you have to work at it and like you were highlighting before there's such a gift in our like now we, we're going to be challenged to think even more critically we're going to be challenged to question things in new ways and that that's an opportunity that's great and I love too that you were highlighting uh, that these are things we already are like this applies in so many areas and things that we're already doing so we've got the foundational pieces there let's right. just keep pushing what we've done before further to protect ourselves to build that critical mindset like we got this we just gotta like do it and keep pushing yeah a lot of these challenges don't really seem particularly new they just have a new context right yeah, have yeah. A new, it's a you know a new, new outfit right like it's the same it's a <laughs> lot of issues, but just dressed up a little bit differently one of the things that you said that uh educators could do and we talked about it a little bit was you know, ask what the tool was developed for and try to use it for that purpose. One thing I was thinking about as uh, we were talking is, I agree with that. And we talked a little bit about that, but also pushing against or thinking of creative ways to leverage the tool beyond what the inventors were thinking might be a way to promote innovation as well. So I, I don't know where's the balance there where, you know, use the tool for what it's for, or let's see what else we can do creatively with this. There's use the tool for what it's for, but I recommend just being really aware of what it's intended for, because ah. that doesn't mean you shouldn't use it in your scenario. Mm -hmm. It will just help you. It'll help inform that critical thinking. Ah, like, yeah. Oh, this is actually purpose-built for something else. So here's the possible areas it might let me down. Mm -hmm. Like ideally it's purpose-built for your particular scenario. That mm -hmm. seems great. Yeah. Um, and there is absolutely the opportunity to use something that's not intended for your purpose to produce some other interesting, like the way I was using it for painting. Mm -hmm. That is not what that AI was built right. for. It was not built to show me ugly pictures that I was like, <laughs> no, uh, but and is not used to inform my painting, is used to generate pictures that you would like post somewhere in the world. Uh, what should we be thinking about as a community of educators as our duty for the future of generative AI and as it relates to bias? Embrace it. Just like, it's here, it's not going anywhere. And um, the faster we embrace this technology, faster we'll learn how to protect ourselves from potential bias or harm that it can uh, contribute to and create. So dive in yourself so you can share the knowledge with your learners and equip people around you to learn and drive it forward and do creative things. So step one is like dive in. We can't firewall this thing off. It's here. <laughs> right. Um, and I think the other thing is this unlocking we're talking about. I don't know what this will lead to, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I, looking at the creativity unlock for me in my painting process, and I imagine I like apply that to, you know, cancer research. How can this help unlock new ways of thinking, mm -hmm. new ways of learning, new ways of fixing and creating? It's just so it's not just let's use the thing. It's not even just let's use the thing safely. Mm -hmm. it's how do we think totally differently mm -hmm. what is this 
how do we evolve um, and let this be a part of unlocking our human potential. There's so many resources out there. It can be a little overwhelming, but like great educational resources coming out to take bite size um, sort of micro learning along the way in your mm -hmm. own journey of understanding. And so you'll find it. There's, there's a lot of resources so you can dive in. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and, and being on the podcast. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Today's podcast was edited by Jaquan Leonard. If you have any ideas for upcoming episodes or would like to send an email, contact us at edufi at mayo.edu.